Y'all give it up for Megan. Thank you so much. It's not light work. Well, yo, we just got, well, my name is Rudy. If you haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'm on staff here with Salt Company. Um, I'm feeling weak, so I'm going to sit a little bit tonight. Sorry. If some of you guys know, I've been sick for like 10 weeks at this point. So I'm like, just pray for me if, you, if it crosses your mind. But I'm going to sit until I can't anymore, and then I'm going to stand, and that's when you're going to know we're ending. I'm kidding. Um, but I'm, I'm really grateful that all of you could be here tonight. We just got back from retreat. Uh, it was a really sweet time. Uh, man, you, you guys... You guys are awesome. <laughs> Such a fun, like, retreat uh, away. Um, two things that I think all of you need to know from retreat. One, Katie Ford's new nickname is Squid, and you just need to ask her why. Like, I'm not going to explain it. You just need to go ask her during open gym. She's really frustrated. I just said that. Um, the other thing the other thing is, is this. Maybe some of you guys don't know this. Uh, the staff set off a fire alarm on Saturday night. Wasn't that, like, some of you, like, have no clue that that happened, and I figured, like, we just confessed our sin in front of you. Like, like it it was, it was wild. We had like a smoke machine that we were like trying to really get going. And then that's exactly right, Bella. That's exactly the right face. That's what my face was like when the fire alarm went off. Cause it was like, oh yeah, duh. Cause it's smoke in a building, right? Like that was awesome. All right. So that was, those were just some really, really special, special moments. Um, but I'm, I'm really grateful to get to be with you guys out here tonight. Um, you've had a great last few weeks. Two weeks ago, Nate came out and taught uh, in our series. And then last week, Sam I love having Sam come out, and it is so good. This weekend, you had Jared teach the word to you. And now I get to kind of carry on our series, uh, which, is, which should be right up on the screen behind me. What is God like? This question that I think is a really uh, helpful one for us to get to ask. A lot of us have asked that question. A lot of the people around us ask that question. What is God like? And, it, and instead of us just like kind of throwing stuff at the wall, what we've done is we've just gone to this place in Exodus chapter 34 where God answers this question for us. Where, 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 where he says, this is who I am. This is what I've, uh, I'm like. We've seen that he's powerful and that he's personal, that he's compassionate and that he's merciful. We've seen that he's slow to anger. And today we're going to see in the text that God abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness, maintaining love to the thousands, or maybe your translation says to a thousand generations. And as I was studying uh, this text and this idea of God's love this last week, two stories came to mind uh, from my, my life. They're, they're not funny ha-ha stories, um, so, so bear with me. Um, in 2013, I was a junior. It was the summer after my junior year. I was leading a youth ministry at a uh, church plant in inner city Tampa. Um, I just helped uh, plant a church in Maui, Hawaii. Uh, and a friend of mine actually started following Jesus that summer. So by all intents and purposes and metrics, it was a pretty great summer, except it was the angriest summer of my entire life to that point. I remember being so furious inexplicably all of the time. <laughs> Like, mad at people around me, mad at my pastor, mad at my bosses. I worked at Chick-fil-A. How do you get mad at someone that we work for at Chick-fil-A? Like, I just got mad all the, that was a funny haha. That's okay. Uh, I, I, just, I just got mad, like, all of the time. And, and um, when I was a kid, I was around some, some people uh, that got very mad and took their anger out on me in some ways. And so I knew that internally, like, I don't want to bring that anger out onto other people. So I was angry all the time, but I internalized all that anger in towards myself. So it was anger and it was the fear of being angry at others that turned all of that inward towards me. And the delta between how I appeared to be and how I actually was doing was vast and wide and massive. I had a miserable, miserable summer. 
It was terrible. 2016, the spring of 2016, I was about a year and a half into um, a job that I started right out of college. Um, I, it was one job that if you really to, were to break it down was actually more like three jobs that were wrapped into one job. Uh, I was working about 70 to 90 hours every week. Um, put that math together, that is unhealthy. Uh, that, that's, what, that's what that was. It was actually really immature and, and deeply insecure of me because I was just trying to prove that I deserved the place that I had at the, here it is, church that I was working for. And so it, it was deeply hypocritical of me to preach a gospel wherein I was saying, Jesus has accomplished everything that's necessary for you to find life with God forever and belonging he, through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. For me to say that, and then for my life on paper in my workplace to essentially proclaim the opposite, that I was constantly trying to earn my place and earn my position and earn my worth and earn my value rather than understanding that it had been given to me by Jesus Christ. It was, as you may imagine, a miserable spring. It actually led to a spiraling, depressed burnout uh, that lasted for about seven weeks wherein I would open the Bible and I would literally say, God, I don't want to read this. And I would start prayers by saying, God, I don't want to pray. It was miserable. In, in both of those cases, I remember there being moments along the way where I would pray and I would say something along the lines of, God, if... <laughs> If this is what's going on with me, if this is where I'm at, how is it possible that you still love me? We, we value authenticity here at Salt Company, and I'm not going to ask you to go first without going first myself, so I'll go first. That was a legitimate prayer that I was praying for those moments in time, and I wasn't like almost a Christian. I was serving in ministry at that time. I was a leader in my college ministry. I was leading a youth group. I was leading a college. I had these moments when I was like, God, if this is where I'm at, how could you, how could you still love me? Maybe, maybe some of you have had moments like that where you think of things that you've done or that you've said or ways you've treated others or ways you've been treated. Or maybe some of you are just in this room and you're like, I don't believe in God, so it doesn't make any sense that he would love me. How is it possible that he would love me? And at the same time, this, this, this phrase comes up, how, 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 God, how, how is it possible, God, how is it possible, how is it possible that you could love me? And tonight, I want to pull back the curtain just a little bit on the love of God. I got about 30 minutes and 50 seconds, so understandably, I'm not going to get all the way there, right? We're not going to understand all of it at the end of this. You'll spend the rest of your life thinking about the love of God, and there's still going to be more for you to discover, but we're going to pull back the curtain just a little bit on the love of God, and I want to show you tonight how God's love is built different. I want, I want you to see, I want you to see, that wasn't, sorry, I don't know why that was funny. Um... <laughs> <laughs> We're going to start with these words right here in the text, that God abounds in steadfast love and faithfulness. Note takers, if you want to write this down, I've got four words for you. God's love is faithful. God's love is faithful. These two words that we see in the text, love and faithfulness, are really the center of our target tonight. They're actually the center of this description of God. They are right smack dab in the middle of this description of who God is. Right in the middle, we find the only attribute of God that is repeated in this entire description of himself. I abound in love and faithfulness, and I maintain my love to a thousand generations. Love and faithfulness. God's love is faithful. So we're going to deal with these words, love and faithfulness, except these words mean so much more than our simple understanding or definitions of love and faithfulness. Let me explain what I mean. 
God uses these two words to describe himself, and they individually mean a great deal, but together they mean a great deal more. They redefine any preconceived, culturally Christian ideology of love that, that we might actually carry in or relationship with God that we might carry on. So let's take them one at a time and then put them together. The first word that's used here is chesed, chesed, which means steadfast love, if you're in the English Standard Version, which is a translation of the Bible. But if you read out of the New King James Version, which some of you do, it's translated goodness. If you read out of the NASB Version, it's translated loving kindness. If you read out of the NIV, it's translated love. And the question we maybe are asking after hearing that is, which of those is correct? And the answer, maybe a little frustratingly for some of us, is that all of them are and none of them are. Because it's in English and this word is a culturally Hebrew word, we actually don't have a one-to-one word that describes what's being laid out here when God says chesed. But I do like what Daniel Block says about it. This quote will be up on the screen. Daniel Block, a Hebrew scholar, says this. He says, the Hebrew word chesed cannot be translated with one English word. It is a covenant term wrapping itself up in all of the positive attributes of God. Love, covenant faithfulness, mercy, grace, kindness, loyalty. In short, acts of devotion and loving kindness that go beyond the requirements of duty. So when God says that he is abounding in love, we are prone in kind of our English Western mind to think that God is laying out how he feels towards us. But the problem is that God's already done that. He already said how he feels towards us earlier when he said, I am compassionate and merciful. God has talked about the emotion of his love, but when God talks about his love here, he's not repeating himself. He's actually building on what he's already said. He said, I've laid out the emotion, and now I need you to know that my love endures. My love is a committed love. My love is a, this love has toughness. This love has strength. This love is resilient. This love remains. He's building on this. He's saying the fullness of my love is not flippant towards you. That the emotion of his love towards his people endures and goes beyond the requirement of duty. And this is where we land on the second word that comes in. This word faithfulness, chemet. This is actually an etymological root for the word amen that you've heard maybe at the end of prayers or have prayed at the end of prayers yourself. This word actually leads to the word amen. When you say amen at the end of your prayer, you are in a sense coming back to this moment in Exodus 34 and remembering that the one that you are praying to is faithful. Chemet means faithful, but it also means true. It's this idea of true faithfulness. Or maybe a better way of saying this is trustworthiness. That God's love is faithful. His love is trustworthy. When you put these two words together, you start to see so much expand around the reality of God's love and his faithfulness. God's love is faithful. God's loving kindness towards us is trustworthy. It is full and it is forever. And it's as if to emphasize this to the original hearers and to us today. In verse 7, he continues on and says, I maintain my chesed to a thousand generations. God says, I maintain it. I watch over it. I protect it. I keep it. And never runs out. It never runs dry. It never fails. It never falls through. It is committed. It is consistent. It is covenant. The idea being conveyed here is that God's love is a covenant love. It is a love fixed on a promise from God to people. Uh, There's something 
um, really interesting about covenants and, and uh, how God makes them. And we see an interesting picture of that actually come in a really off-putting portion of the Bible uh, in Genesis chapter 15. You don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll tell you the story. Just before this, in Genesis chapter 12, God has spoken to a man named Abram, who would later be known as Abraham. And he's spoken to this man, and he said, I'm going to multiply your family. I'm going to make a nation come from you that outnumbers the stars and outnumbers uh, the, the sand on the seashore there. You will have a massive family. A massive nation is going to come from your lineage and from you, Abram. And Abram's like, that's cool. I got him. They're good, pretty good for me, right? And he continues this covenant, and he says, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to bless the world through you. I'm going to rescue the world from sin through you, Abram. That's my covenant to you. That's my promise to you. He makes a promise with Abram. In Genesis chapter 12, he articulates it. And in Genesis chapter 15, he images it. There's this moment in Genesis 18 that God shows Abram and us something about his covenant that redefines how we understand the way that God makes and keeps promises. God lays out a picture of Genesis 15 that his covenant making is different. His promise keeping is different. The common way that a promise or that a covenant would be understood is that uh, one party and another or two parties or two people would come together and say, I'll do this and you do that, you do that and I'll do this. And if we both uphold both of our ends of the agreement, then we'll be in covenant together. But if one of the two of us uh, breaks our promise to one another, then the, the promise itself is over, it's broken, it's done. Both have to uphold the covenant. But God shows something different. He has Abram do something that is like culturally appropriate in uh, Genesis chapter 15. And he makes a sacrifice of animals. And he splits the animals in two, putting one half of the animal on one side, one half of the animal on the other side. Some people talk about covenant in relation to marriage. But if you ask me to do your marriage and you say, we're going to split some animals and we're going to walk through them, I'm going to let you know I'm not doing that wedding, guys. It's not happening, right? Like, but that's a culturally appropriate thing to occur, occur in this context. When you make a covenant with someone, you'd make a sacrifice, split the animals, and then you would both walk through the middle of the animals as if to say, if I don't keep up my end of the deal, let me become like one of these sacrificed animals. My blood be shed if the promise isn't kept. It's what James Clear, the author of Atomic Habits, would call the grand gesture. It is the severity and seriousness of the covenant that's been made. But in Genesis 15, something really interesting happens. God causes Abram to fall into an immobilized state and he has this picture of God as a smoking pot moving through the animals and through the sacrifice up and down the middle while Abram stands on the side and watches. Now, if you've ever read that story in the Bible and thought, what the heck is going on there? Join the team. We've got jackets and patches, right? Like, like that is an odd story. And we've got to be able to admit, like in our Western 21st century mind, that reads weird, okay? But what's happening there is so incredible. God is saying that the one who is ultimately responsible for this covenant is not Abraham. He says, it's me. He says, I'll be the one that walks through the animals. I'll be the one that walks through this. I'll be the one that says the weight of keeping this covenant is not on you, Abram. You stay over there. You're immobilized. You're asleep. You're watching me walk through the middle. He's saying that even if Abram and his children don't keep the covenant, don't worship God, don't hold up their end of the promise, which spoiler alert on the Bible, they don't and neither do we. Even if that doesn't happen, God says, I'll still keep my covenant. I'll still keep my promise to you. I'll be loyal 
to you even if you're not loyal to me. He'll still make them a nation and he'll still rescue the world through them, ultimately through Jesus Christ who would come from the people of Abram to save the world that God so loved. He's saying that no matter the cost, if blood has to be spilled for this covenant, for this promise to be seen through, then it won't come from Abram and it won't come from his descendants and it won't come from me and it won't come from you. It'll come from God himself. He's willing to suffer if it means the covenant is fulfilled. He'll be faithful, even if we aren't. In our cultural moment where love is often uh, fixated on reactivity and requirements, a transactional agreement where if, if you don't react to me properly or you don't uh, agree with me in the certain ways and our relationship is broken, God's love is different. God's love is not flippant or reactive. It is faithful. It's faithful. It is faithful. This is what it means for God to say that his love is his faithfulness and his faithfulness is his love for him to abound and maintain love. God is saying that his love is loyal to his people, that he will be who he is, abounding in love and faithfulness, and he'll keep his promise to love those who are his. All right, 10 minutes into the message, and we're like, Rudy, we get it. God is love. I've heard this Sunday school bars before. What I need you to understand, though, is when Exodus 34 is happening makes this so much heavier than it seems in a vacuum. God says this about his people literally right after they have denied him and worshiped a false god. God is saying this in Exodus 34, but in Exodus 32, the Israelites have been rescued by God from slavery in Egypt. They've been brought through the Red Sea from certain death at Pharaoh's army, and God has provided for them all along the way. They've gone to the base of a mountain, and Moses has gone up the mountain to get the law from God so they might have a structure and a way that would lead to their flourishing, that God would provide in his goodness for them to be able to move forward and become a nation. And the people get impatient, and they run up to Aaron, Moses' brother, and and they say, make us a God for us to worship. And so they make a golden calf based on Apis, one of the cult idols of Egyptian bull worship. And they essentially have a worship service to the golden calf that denigrates into a drunken orgy. If you want a word for what they do here in their worship of the golden calf at the base of the mountain where God is providing the law to Moses for this people, here it is. They deny him. They deny him. They turn their back on him. I don't have time to get into the rest of this story, but it is bloody, it is messy, it is shameful, and it ends with repentance and intercession, but it is a terrible moment in the history of Israel. It is shameful, and it is shameful at the weight of the denial that they have done, and it is after that denial in Exodus 34 that God says to you who have denied me, I'm abounding in love and faithfulness, and I'll maintain that love to a thousand generations. To a people who literally just denied me, he looks at them and said, I still chesed you. My love is still loyal. It's a covenant love. It goes beyond the requirements of duty, even to a people who've denied me. Where his people could have looked at themselves and said, God, how could you still love us? We've denied you. We've turned our back on you. How could you still love us? God's tender, loving, kind response would be because I promised that I would. And I keep my promises.
even if you fall short of keeping your end of the covenant, I'll keep mine. God's love is faithful, even when the people that he loves aren't. And, and as we turn our attention here for a moment to Jesus, there's actually a really well-known story that exemplifies that exact reality, that exact replay, as Jesus shows love that is faithful to a person in particular who had a moment around a fire where he is anything but faithful to Jesus. Please remember, as we're studying what God is like, we are also seeing what Jesus is like. If we return to this verse a few times, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So as we're looking at what the love of God is like, we are also considering what the love of Jesus is like. So what does the covenant love look like in the life of Jesus, specifically towards those who deny him? Well, let me set the scene. On the night that Jesus and his disciples were sharing Passover, which interestingly was the meal that commemorated the freedom from Egyptian slavery by God for the men and women who would eventually worship the golden calf at the base of the mountain, God had rescued his people and this people had a practice of remembering that rescue with the meal. And after this meal, Jesus would be betrayed by Jesus, accosted by religious leaders. They take him to a sham of a trial in the high priest court. He'd be condemned and he would die on the cross for our sin. But it's, it's there in the high priest court that our story starts to take shape. In John chapter 18, there's one of Jesus' disciples that we've already talked about this semester, Peter, who's standing in the high priest's courtyard with the servants and the officials of the people who are falsely accusing Jesus. They're standing around, hold on to this, a charcoal fire, warming themselves when a servant girl, maybe 12 or 13 years old, comes up to Peter and says, you aren't one of that man's disciples too, are you? And Peter, who, mind you, like just a couple minutes ago, had, or just a couple, sorry, just a few hours ago, had said, even if I have to die, I won't deny you. He looks at this seventh grader and is like, not me. Standing around the charcoal fire, now the servants and officials ask him the same question. Are you one of that man's disciples? He says, I am not. A third time around the charcoal fire, a specific person, one of the high priest's servants. Uh, interestingly, a man who was a relative of an individual that Peter, in a moment of trying to defend Jesus, who did not need to be defended, uh, cut off this dude's relative's ear. The, 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 the guy's relative comes up to him and is like, hey, weren't you in the garden with him? Which, by the way, he's trying to ask, are you the dude that cut off my cousin's ear? Like, that's a, you could just ask that but he doesn't he, he he says hey weren't you in the garden with him and Peter says no no it wasn't it wasn't me and when Peter denies it for that third time immediately a rooster crows and in Luke's gospel this will be on the text in the account of this at the exact moment of the rooster crowing Luke 22 61 through 62 the text says that the Lord turned and looked at Peter just imagine that for a moment Jesus is surrounded by people who are falsely accusing him. And in that moment when the rooster crows, Jesus' eyes go, shoom, right with Peter's. And Peter realized in that moment exactly what has just happened. Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, before the rooster crows today, you'll deny me three times. And Peter went outside and wept bitterly. Peter is weeping bitterly because he has denied Jesus. And then Peter watches Jesus die, just like Jesus said he would. And now just imagine again for a moment that you're Peter. The last moment that you share with the man that you looked at and said, that's the Messiah, that's the Savior, you are the Christ, you're the one that we've been waiting for. The last moment that you have with him, 
is eye contact after you realize that he knows that you've just denied him three times. And then Jesus dies. Perhaps the question pounding in the mind of Peter was the same one that pounded in mine and the same one that at different times is pounded in yours. Jesus, how on earth could you, could you love me after I've done this? How could Jesus still love Peter after Peter is so viscerally and violently denied Christ? John chapter 21 gives us the answer. Text is on the screen. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Pause there. Jesus has called his shot in the way that he's died, and he's called his shot in the reality that he has risen again. Jesus died for our sin and rose again for our life, and we are seeing Jesus risen here, revealing himself to the disciples. Simon Peter, Thomas called twin, Nathaniel from Cana of Galilee, Zebedee's sons, and two other of the disciples were together. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter said to them. We're coming with you. They told him, I love that. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. When daybreak came, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. Friends, Jesus called to them, you don't have any fish, do you? No, they answered. Well, cast a net on the other side of the boat, he told them, and you'll find some. So they did, and they were unable to haul it in because of the large number of fish. The disciple, the one Jesus loved, that would be John, said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he tied his outer clothing around him, for he had taken it off, and he plunged into the sea. <laughs> Love verse 8. It was like, well, since they weren't that far off from the land, about 100 yards away, the other disciples came in by the boat, dragging the net full of fish. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Bring up some of the fish that you've caught, Jesus told them. And Simon Peter climbed up and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Even though there were so many, the net was not torn. I want you to pay attention to verses 3 and 9 in here. They'll come up on the screen behind me. Um, in, in verse 3, you see Peter saying, I'm going to go fishing because often our insecurities cause us to return to whatever is familiar to us when we feel afraid. That's what's happening here with Peter. The resurrection has occurred. They've seen Jesus two other times already, but the disciples, they haven't stayed with him. The disciples have no idea really what to do. And you need to understand that Peter still feels deep shame for his denial. And so Peter goes back to what he's always known and what he's always done. Peter goes fishing, which is exactly what he was doing when he encountered Jesus for the first time in Matthew chapter 4. The first time that Jesus encountered Peter, Peter was fishing. And it's as if on the same sea, on the same shore, we are seeing that first moment of Jesus calling Peter to follow him recreated in this one. But it's not the only moment that's being recreated here. Look at verse 9 up there. When they got out of the land, they saw a charcoal fire there. You remember John 18, when Peter denied Jesus what they were standing around? It was a charcoal fire. And where does Peter find himself now? Around a charcoal fire. This is the exact word anathrika, which is used for this distinct fire, and it's only used in two places in the entire New Testament. It is used in John 18 and John 21. It is a linguistic link that is intended by the author for us to connect that moment to this moment, for us to understand that as Peter gets on the, the shore, it's as if the look, feel, smell, and smoke of this charcoal fire would be an instant reminder to Peter of the time at which he denied Jesus and wept Bitterly, this exact type of fire represents Peter's greatest and fullest failure. 
It is two worlds colliding. The moment where Peter first felt the warmth of the love of Jesus as he was invited and the moment where Peter denies Jesus and his love at the end. It is the invitation to follow on the shore at the beginning and the failure of denial in the fire at the end. These two worlds colliding in one moment and Peter has jumped out of the boat and swam to shore and run to Jesus and he was just standing there like dripping wet in the middle of this collision of moments, just waiting for Jesus to speak. You've got to understand there's no confusion in Peter's mind. Peter knows that he has sinned. He knows that he's done wrong. He knows that he has messed up royally. He knows he sinned in a significant way, and he still chooses to jump out of the boat and swim to shore where Jesus is because that's where Jesus is. He's waiting for Jesus to speak because Peter knows that if anybody could love him after he's denied him, it's Jesus. So what's Jesus say? (laughs) This is great. Come and have breakfast, Jesus told them. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Because they already knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. And this was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Jesus looks at the disciples and he says, come have breakfast with me. And that doesn't really sound like a big deal to us, right? Let's get brunch, right? Okay, like, like that, okay. But, but Jesus says, come have breakfast, breakfast with me because in this culture, you have to understand that the meal was the relationship. Who you ate with was who you were in fellowship with, who you shared intimacy with, who you belonged with and belonged to, who you were accepted by and who accepted you. Who you ate with was who you loved. Because of his denial, the dominating thought in Peter's mind was that he would not be accepted. That his shame would say that he didn't belong at the same meal with Jesus. How could Jesus eat with the one who had denied him? He's afraid that Jesus might say to his disciples, come and have breakfast with me. Come and eat with me. Except for you, Peter. You denied me. You, you turned your back on me. You, you, didn't, you didn't put your trust in me. You, you denied me. Everyone can come and eat, but not Peter. Jesus may have fully been in his rights to do that, and graciously, it is not what happens. Jesus looks at all the disciples, including Peter, and says, come and have breakfast. You see, where Peter expected rejection, what he receives is acceptance. Where Peter expected judgment, what he received was forgiveness. Where Peter expected condemnation, what he received was invitation. Jesus invites him to breakfast. Jesus invites Peter, the one who's denied him, to sit with him. And Peter experiences with every wisp of smoke that comes in his nostrils, every bite of fish and bread, every word from Jesus' mouth, every moment that their eyes lock again while they're eating, he's experiencing the restorative power of the love of Jesus. Jesus Christ towards him as he sits with his Savior who's invited him back into relationship. Where Peter's denial should have destroyed the relationship, Christ's love covers him. Where Peter's faithlessness should have crushed the relationship, Christ's faithfulness is enough for Peter to remain. It is a picture of the covenant love of Jesus restoring relationship that was broken by Peter's denial and sin. But that's not all that he restores. Look at verse 15 on the screen. When they had eaten breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said to them. You know that I love you. I'm going to feed my lambs, he told them. 
The second time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, he said to him. You know that I love you. Then shepherd my sheep, he told him. He asked him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved that he asked him a third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Feed my sheep, Jesus said. I wondered sometimes if Peter wanted to ask the first question here. If Peter wanted to approach Jesus and say, Jesus, do you still love me? Jesus, do, do you want anything to do with me still? I know we've eaten, but I just, I need to hear it from you. I know you heard me deny you, but I need to hear from you that you want me. But I need to hear from you. Jesus, do you still love me? Peter doesn't ask that question first. Jesus speaks first. And in Jesus addressing Peter with this question over and over and over, Peter, do you love me? We are seeing two important things about the love of God. First, Jesus is looking at Peter and he's saying, hey, Peter, I know you're wondering if I still love you, but I need you to know between the two of us, I never moved. I never moved. I, I, I didn't move. This is the way to the covenant nature of God's love. If you come to him and you ask him to forgive you and to save you, his love doesn't move. Jesus never moved. But in asking these three questions, he's giving Peter a moment to assess if Peter's moved. And Peter is eager to the point of grief to make it clear, no, Jesus, I love you, I love you, I love you. So the first thing, Jesus' love never moved. But the second thing is this, Jesus does what the love of God has the tendency to do, which is to go after the absolute deepest and most uncomfortable place in us to prove a point. He turns his attention to Peter's greatest failure, his three denials of Jesus. And in this interaction, we are seeing something so wonderfully hopeful that we can hardly believe that it's true. Uh, Jesus is restoring the deepest failure of Peter. Three confessions of denial are met with three confessions of love. It's as if Jesus is going for the jugular and he's saying, I love that deepest, darkest, most failed, most broken, most busted up, most ugly part of you and your denial of me. And if I love that part of you, what other part of you do you think that I can't forgive, restore, make new or love? It is all of it. Jesus is dumping a waterfall of grace on Peter, and we're seeing him receive it in real time. The fisherman is still to be a fisher of men who would care for the sheep, the people who would follow after Jesus. Jesus' intent for Peter has not changed. Did Peter fail? Yes. Did Peter sin? Yes. Did Peter deny? Yes. Does Christ forgive? Yes. Did Christ restore? Yes. Does Christ's love remain faithful? Yes. This is the weight of the covenant love of God from Jesus to Peter. The bad news is that Peter has sinned and denied Christ. But the good news is that Jesus saves and restores sinners. Because that's all that he's got to work with. This is his abounding and maintained love. It abounds towards Peter. It is full towards him. Inviting him into the meal. Inviting him into the relationship. And it is maintained towards Peter. He says, as long as I am with you, please know I haven't moved. My love for you, Peter, hasn't changed. I'll maintain this love until your last breath. And when you take this last breath on this life, you'll take the next breath with me in eternity forever and know this love that you've tasted now in part in a way that you could only dream of and that dream of a dream couldn't even come close to the fullness of the love that I will show to you in eternity. Abounding and maintaining his love is faithful. 
All right, I'm going to take my seat here soon. But I think there's two things that we can pick up on as we close our time. Number one, because God's love is faithful, you can swim to shore. Peter knows that he's messed up. He knows that he sinned. And there's something about Jesus that doesn't cause him to shy away or to hide his sin or to explain it away or to put it in a corner, but to swim to shore where Jesus is. Our problem, if we're honest, is that when we sin, we often want to swim anywhere else. We want to go to other islands like it only happened once island or it didn't hurt anybody island. Or that's not really who I am, island. Or my favorite one, which is the that's the last time, island. And when we swim to any other place other than where Jesus is with our sin, we can be sure that our sin is simply going to grow. It's just going to weigh us down. It's just going to continue to debilitate us. We often don't want to swim to the shore where Jesus is with our sin because if we do, we will have to come face to face with our sin and our brokenness and our failure. And it hurts I get it. It's hard to stare our brokenness in the face, but I've got to believe that Peter jumped off that boat and swam to shore because he, while he was unsure of exactly what would happen, he had hope that Jesus was the best place that he could bring his brokenness. It was the love of Jesus that drew Peter to swim to shore. That Jesus was the best friend that he could bring his failure to. And check this, Peter doesn't show up on the shore all cleaned up and put together with the right answer about, oh, I already, this is what I've done, and just look at all these things that I've figured out and completed and done. He, he doesn't show up cleaned up. He doesn't show up impressive. He shows up drenched, dripping wet, denial, and shame. He's come to Jesus just as he is, full confession of wrong, helpless and hopeful in Jesus Christ. And here's what's amazing. The gospel shows us that Jesus, in his love, fully forgives Peter. He fully restores Peter. And no matter what that thing is for Peter, he forgives. No matter what that thing is for us, he makes it new. He washes clean. He wipes the slate. He gives mercy and grace that renew us. This is the gospel. We repent of our sin and believe in him and he makes us new. We see our sin and swim to shore knowing that the Jesus who loves us is faithful and the one who has done everything that's necessary for us to be forgiven, for us to be invited into the family of God so that we might share God with Jesus as Father. I know that sometimes it's hard to come to shore with our sin, but you've got to understand that what's waiting for you and what's waiting for me on the shore when we bring our sin to Jesus is so much better. God's love is waiting for you on the shore. So please, I'm begging you, quit trying to manage your sin or beat your own sin or doggy paddle in the middle of the ocean with your sin. It just weighs you down. You can't handle it. You won't handle it. Quit making excuses only to wind up in the same place over and over and over again. You can swim to shore and surrender your sin to the Savior who loves you and who forgives you. For some of you, that will look like you um, confessing sin to another person or in your connection group. James 5.16 says that we confess our sin to one another and pray for one another so that we might be healed. 1 John 1.9 says that Jesus is faithful and just, that when we confess our sin, he cleanses us of all unrighteousness. And maybe you need to pull someone aside after Salt Company, or maybe you need to just like come into your connection group and say, guys, I need to confess my sin, and I need you to pray for me because I want to see this thing dead. I want to bring my sin to shore. 
some of you need to actually just come to Jesus for the very first time for salvation. You've been counting the cost for several weeks. You've been considering what it would look like for you to say yes to Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus. He's going to be my Lord and he's going to be my Savior. You've been wrestling back and forth with that for a little while. And I need you to hear this. John, uh, Romans chapter 5, 8 says that the love of God, this love of God is shown to us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That means that you don't have to figure out all of the answers and how you're going to clean yourself up and how you're going to show up. You can show up just like Peter did, drenched, uh, messed up, a sinner in your shame, in your whatever it is. And you can say, Jesus, I need you. I trust in you. I repent of my sin. I believe in you as my Lord and as my Savior. And his love will be faithful to you to save you. See, when, because his love is faithful, we can swim to shore. You can come to shore tonight. Jesus is there with his love that is faithful. The second thing is this. Because God's love is faithful, you actually can sit with Jesus. I love that Jesus invites Peter to have breakfast with him. Jesus is saying to Peter, come, rest in my love for you. Remain with me. It's strong. It can hold you. It's abounding. I forgive you. I'm loyal. I'm with you. Um, and, and it's an incredible invitation from Jesus to say, you can sit with, you can be with me. You, you can do that by uh, opening the Bible in the mornings like I do with a cup of coffee. Thank you, Jesus, for coffee. And, and just like open up the text and read the Bible that Tim Mackey says is the story of God that leads us to Jesus. And I come back to the scripture so that I can remember again and again and again this loving God that has made a way for me to be saved. This loving God who has made a way for grace and mercy, who is faithful in his love and his love is faithful. It can return over and over and over again through scripture. Sometimes I find I need to return over and over and over again through silence. I am such an achiever. <laughs> I have immense expectations for myself that have had to be like quelled by the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're the things that got me into the situations and the stories that I shared at the beginning where I was questioning God's love for me. And I've learned through the practice of just sitting quiet before God and saying something, a very short prayer like, Jesus, you're here, so am I, and that's enough. I put a timer on my phone for like five minutes and I just sit there in the silence. There are things that come to mind, I write them down, I put them aside, and I say, Jesus, I give everyone and everything to you, including that. And I just sit there in the quiet, why? Because in a life, in my life and in your life that is so marked by noise and by action and movement, to slow down is to make war against the hurry that will crush your life from being loving. You slow down in that moment and you say, Jesus, it is enough right now for me to just be here with you. That you love me right now. I'm as much a son or a daughter right now and just being quiet in front of you because of what you've done through your gospel as I am in the greatest moment of leading a connection group, in the greatest moment of sharing the gospel, in the wisest moment of sharing a truth, in the most beautiful moment of whatever it is that I can just actually sit there and instead of doing something, I can just be still and know that you are God. And in that silence, I just sit with him. Scripture silence prayer, whatever it is, because God's love is faithful, you can sit with Jesus. And here's what's incredible. As you sit with him, you'll become more like him. Jesus is committed to the project of you and me becoming more like him. He's committed to that. He wants it more than we do. 
Even on the days where we want it, he wants it more than we do. On the days where we don't, he wants it way more than we do. But he wants it more than we do. For us to sit with him and become more like him. And if his love is faithful, then as we're with him and we become more like him, wouldn't it mean that our love towards one another would also become more faithful as well? You see, some people think a mark of maturity in following Jesus is that you're able to articulate and pontificate more and more knowledge about more and more things. But I wonder if one of the marks of maturity that is overlooked is whether or not in being with Jesus and sitting with Jesus and sitting in scripture and those things that you're learning and those things that you're knowing, that you're actually becoming more like him and more like the one whose love is faithful and then your love towards one another actually becomes more faithful. What if that's the mark of maturity that we're moving towards? What if that's a a, a place that Jesus is actually inviting each of us into? I I wonder if as we stare at the love of Jesus, if we stare at the love of God that is faithful, as it shapes us, as it crafts us, as we remember it, that it actually shouldn't cause our love for one another to grow more faithful as well, to grow stronger as well, to abound for one another as well. So not so much a question to answer, but maybe one to leave you with. What would it look like for the love that's come to you from Jesus to go through you to others? How would you be? What would you be like in your connection group? What would you be like on campus in your classroom? How would you move towards others if the love that's come to you through Jesus goes through you towards others? How would that change you? How would that shape what you're around? Just for a moment of silence and and concentration, I'm going to ask us to close our eyes and bow our heads before we we close here. And I just want to give you a moment to just reflect and to respond. If you're here and you are a Christian, I wonder how you'll sit with your Savior. I wonder if you'll swim to shore. I wonder how you'll remember his love and what it would look like for the love that's come to you from Jesus to go through you to others. Maybe you just need to pray and ask Jesus, how can I do that? What, what is my next place, my next step there? Jesus, how do you want me to sit with you? Jesus, what's the thing in my life that I'm not bringing to you? What's the sin that I'm trying to build my life around to protect and to try to manage that, that is weighing me down in the depths of the water and that I just need to swim and bring it to you right now, tonight? If you're a Christian, I need you to consider those things. But if you're not a Christian, I need you to consider this. This is the love of Jesus towards you. It is not a clean yourself up and you can be accepted. It is a show up soaking wet and eat breakfast with your Savior kind of love. You can bring your sin to shore tonight. Romans 5, 8, the love of God that Christ died for you while you were still a sinner. You can put your trust in Jesus Christ tonight. I'm praying that you would. So take a moment here, wherever you're at, in the quiet, respond. I'll pray in a moment. We'll see.
it says that where sin abound, grace abounded all the more. Your word says that love covered a multitude of sins. God, I pray that tonight your love would lead to our freedom, that we would bring ourselves and our sin and our brokenness to you, and we would know that you, whose love is faithful, can hold it, can handle it, can forgive it, can free us from it. God, set us free. God, I pray for those in here who um, are not, have not put their faith in, in you, Jesus. I, God, I, I ask that you would draw them to yourself, that there would be something about your love, even this week, that would draw men and women to come to you and to put their trust in you, Jesus. God, would you do it? Would you meet us here? So we're going to sing, God, and, and we're going to sing not to try to get something from you, not to try to make something happen. We're gonna sing in response to this great love that you have shown, to your covenant, consistent, committed, loyal love, your abounding, beautiful, compassionate, merciful, patient, and glorious love. God, we're grateful. We love you. It's in your name that we pray.